1: Will it figure out that it's that it's best to register your ship in Panama and incorporate in Delaware? And will it figure out that double Dutch Irish sandwich? I don't remember that hack. That was a hack that companies like Google and Apple would use, and it involves having an Irish company, a Dutch company, and an offshore American company, like in the Caribbean, and by moving intellectual property around and. Other things, you're able to avoid all sorts of U.S. tax. The ridiculous hack that involved the interplay of the laws of four different jurisdictions. Computers are really good at doing that kind of detailed pouring through possibilities and combinations. So we could imagine computers that can find new tax loopholes. And that, to me, is really interesting because it changes the nature of hacking.
2: I'm Jack Goldsmith, and this is the Lawfare Podcast of February 7th, 2023. How does computer hacking work? When is it good and bad? And what does it have to teach us about law, politics, and inequality? These are some of the questions that Bruce Schneier, a well-known security expert and lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School, answers in his new book, A Hacker's Mind, how the powerful bend society's rules, and how to bend them back. Bruce and I discussed what it means to have a hacker's mind, why all systems, not just computer systems, are hackable, how and why the powerful and wealthy are typically the most successful hackers, and what AI will mean for hacking various systems. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 7, The Hacker's Mind. Bruce, your book's title is A Hacker's Mind, and we'll come to the subtitle in a moment, but what is a hacker's mind and do you have one?
1: So to me, a hacker's mind is someone who looks at systems and figures out how they fail. I think I do. I think I've had it since childhood and I think a lot of hackers are are born that way. And it's just a way of looking at the world, looking at systems, seeing how they fail, how they can be subverted, how they can be made to do things they're Designers didn't intend. And and it comes out in computers. Computer hacking is looking at computer systems and getting to do things they weren't supposed to do.
2: So let's talk about that. I mean, first of all, I learned from your book where the word hack came from. Can you tell us the origin of the word and just give us a little primer? We'll start off in the computer context, but the extraordinary thing about your book is that you – you apply the concept of hacking and the nomenclature that goes around with hacking to lots of areas of social and political and other aspects of life. But let's start in the computer context. Tell us what hack means, what a hack is, what's the basic nomenclature. If you want to use a, a famous example, you can or just talk through it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's a term that's gone through a lot of definitions over the years because it's it's a slang. It's it's a term of art, it's a term that people use to talk amongst themselves. Never was actually precisely defined. Comes out of the model railroading into early computers. MIT seems to be where it started. And it is this notion of trickery, of cleverness, of figuring it out, of making do, of having a system do something that maybe is novel or unexpected. I hacked it together. I built it, but I kind of built it out of random parts I found in my basement. Uh, I found a good hack. I found a good trick, and it's kind of quickly coalesces into a into a computer term of finding something that the computer can do that's permitted, the code allows, but is unintended. And then, you know, it it gets countercultural and it gets criminal because most hacks—that's a bad example—may say most. Lots of hacks are against the rules which are often also against the law. So hacking becomes something the bad guys do. And then it's associated with with kids and computers and hoodies and bad movies and television shows. But there's this notion of figuring out something new, unintended, unanticipated, probably unwanted, that gives the hacker, the person who figured it out, some sort of capability or advantage or access.
2: Okay. So just apply this to some, if, if you could, to some famous hack. I mean, I, I use Eternal Blue, which is an example, you, the Eternal Blue exploit you use in the, in the book. You have a lot of examples. Just pick one you like. But let me ask you before you do, along the way, explain what you mean by unintended, because you talked about a hack being permitted by the rules, but unintended. Could you flesh that out in the context of an example?
1: So Eternal Blue is the NSA code name for an exploit in Microsoft Windows. And this is an example of a hack. So Windows, the program, right, designed by a company by Microsoft, written by programmers, does a lot of things. And it has protections and permissions and it opens files. That's all the things you do on Windows. But someone, you know, probably at the NSA, we actually don't know what the origin story of Eternal Blue, discovered. That if they sent some commands to a Windows computer over the internet, it would do something that Microsoft never intended. That it gave the the person who sent those commands access to the computer remotely. Uh, This is a vulnerability because if it, it allows someone to gain unauthorized access, the act of using the hack is known as an exploit. So there's a computer example of a quintessential hack. It's there, it's allowed, the code permits it. If the designers knew about it, they would have they would patch it, they would fix it. They don't know, the hacker knows, and then the hacker gains some advantage.
2: And so an important element of this in defining a hack and you make this clear is that you describe it as an activity that's allowed by the system, as you, as you just said, but the activity somehow subverts the goal or intent of the system. And so this idea, and this is important to, to explain this so we can generalize the concept, this idea of subverting the goal or the intent of the system seems central to, to a hack. Is that right?
1: It is central, and it's easy in this case. Right? Microsoft is the designer. They have a specification. They have programmers. They're in charge of what the goal is. When we get to some of our other hacks, this will be a lot harder to figure out.
2: Yeah, when we get to social stuff, when we get to law, identifying the intent, as you say in the book, is difficult, and we'll get there.
1: So you say that children are are natural hackers. What does that mean? So a lot of this is about following the rules, and children are really bad at following rules just because... They often don't know what the rules are, what they mean, what they're for. And I have some great hacks in the book that are perpetrated by children. A lot came out of COVID-19. My favorite is a kid who figured out in Zoom that if he blanked his screen and changed his username to connecting dot dot dot, his teacher would think he would have connection problems and he wouldn't have to pay attention to class. Now that's kind of brilliant. He didn't break the system, the system, let him do that. But he's subverting the intent. And hacks are all of this type. There are hacks in professional sports, uh, casino games, frequent flyer programs. There have been hacks. There have been hacks, sort of in all these systems. And so, and kids, I think, are really good at it, just because they don't have that natural inclination to follow the rules.
2: So. The first couple of parts of the book, the first part especially, is a very good introduction, as all of your work is. It's a very good introduction to, you know, the basics, the nuts and bolts of what a computer hack is, how it works, what the nomenclature is, some famous examples. Uh, and then you you give some famous examples of computer hacks. and then But then you zoom out. You, you talk about financial hacks. You talk about gambling hacks, which I guess are related to that. But when it gets really interesting, it seems to me, is when you get to legal systems and hacking legal systems, hacking political systems, hacking cognitive systems, and hacking AI systems. And I want to walk through those. So how does hacking apply to legal systems?
1: Well, let's start with uh, you know, more simpler systems of rules. So I'm going to talk about systems of rules in general. Legal systems are an example of that. So let's take sports. Sports have defined rules. There is a rule book. It's not a legal system, but a system of rules. And there are arbitrators, there are judges, and there are legislators who write the rules. And they are hacked all the time. So a good example is is hockey. Uh, Curving your hockey stick is a hack. So remember my definition. It's something the rules allow, or at least the rules are silent about but is unintended and unanticipated. Curving the hockey stick changed the game dramatically. Puck goes faster, it gets air, it's more dangerous, people are wearing more protective clothing, but it's a more exciting game. So someone invents this. What was it before it was curved? Straight.
2: Just a straight piece of wood.
1: No, so so, the hockey stick looks like a hockey stick, curving it in the other dimension.
2: Oh, I see. You mean, you're talking about curving it on the bottom of the L... Uh, right. Yeah. Got it.
1: And so that makes it a much more powerful stick for moving the puck. Now, in response, the game changes and the designers of the system, right? The, the, whatever the rule body for the national hockey league, I don't know, I don't know their name, has to decide, is this hack a good idea or a bad idea? They could prohibit it. They could allow it. In fact, what they do is they kind of are in the middle. They. They. Uh, specify a maximum curvature that's allowed. They change it. They change it again. They change it again. They're trying to find this balance. Take a different system of rules. Airline frequent flyer program. I I mean, I fly a lot. I spend a lot of time studying those rules. And those have been hacked. Uh, Mileage runs is the term that was used, I guess, in the 2000s. For flights you would take, because you didn't want to take them, but you needed the miles. You looked for... You look for flights that gave you a lot of miles for a little cost, and they were hacks. They were largely tolerated by the airlines, but the airlines eventually modified their programs to make them less effective. And, and nowadays, there really isn't such thing as a mileage run anymore, that the systems are good enough that they don't have those anomalies. The example I start the book with is, is the tax code. And here the parallels pretty exact. Right? It's not computer code, but it's a series of algorithms. Right? It has inputs and outputs, and it has bugs. It has vulnerabilities. Right, We call them tax loopholes. It has exploits based on the vulnerabilities. Those are called tax avoidance strategies. And there are an army of black hat hackers whose job it is to find them. They're called tax accountants and tax attorneys. And remember, these hacks are not necessarily illegal. They're loopholes. They're things the system allows. Now, when they occur, the tax authorities, maybe the IRS, maybe it takes Congress, can either patch the, the bug, the vulnerability, the loophole, right? Change the tax code to prohibit it, or allow it. And you know, depending on what happens, you know, different things occur or it stays in a state of limbo. But so that's really the motivation. Any system of rules, and you asked about laws. So laws are just a system of rules. So it might be laws around financial markets, laws around taxis or hotels, right, that companies like Uber or Airbnb will look for hacks, look for vulnerabilities they can exploit. It could be rules of electing government officials, right, gerrymandering is a hack invented in the 1800s. I mean, these are all sort of legal things that have unanticipated outcomes that are to someone's advantage.
2: So one characteristic of almost all of these hacks is sometimes they lead to good results. Uh, The hockey stick example was an innovation that the hockey rule makers thought was a good innovation. Sometimes they lead to what are considered bad results. I, I guess some tax loopholes get closed. sometimes as you talk about a tax loopholes discovered and it remains a, a lot of what you're talking about is testing systems and trying to innovate. And sometimes the innovations are accepted and work and sometimes they don't work. Is that fair?
1: I think that's right. Hacking is innovative. It's innovative in a adversarial way, in a parasitical way, but sometimes there are results or things that we like and hacks are a way for systems to evolve faster than the normal process. I mean, changing the rules of a sport, changing the laws of our country. This is hard. This can take a while. But a hack that allows someone to do something they couldn't do, and it's a good thing, is a fast way to get around it. I mean, sometimes we don't like it. Another story from sports. In the 80s, some team shows up on the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. And everyone says, You can't have a six wheeled car. And they pull out the rule book and say, Show me. And it turns out the rules are silent on the number of wheels a car can have because no one ever thought that a car wouldn't have four wheels. Now, the uh, Formula One Racing Federation, I think they have a French name, eventually did fix the rules. And if you go now into the rule book, it says that a car can have no more or no less, don't get any ideas, than, than four wheels. And that was easy, right? That was deemed not to be an innovation. But curving a hockey stick was. Dunking in basketball was originally against the rules of the game. And it was prohibited. Someone did it. It wasn't in the rules. It was quickly made illegal. But turns out fans liked it. So the rules were changed. And now it's a more exciting game because basketball players dunk.
2: Right, so I want to ask you about I think you mentioned Uber a second ago, Airbnb, the gig economy stuff. And at one point in the book, several points in the book, I think you, you say just as it's difficult with some systems to determine or maybe contested determine, to determine what the intent of the system is, and you kind of need to have a conception of intent to understand whether it's a hack or not, I think. Is that right?
1: You know, you can have a vague understanding of intent. I mean, what's the intent of basketball? Right To have a fair game, a good game, an exciting game, a game the fans that like, a game that advertisers want to advertise on. So, you know, these intents aren't explicit, but we kind of can sort of figure out what they are. What is the intent of the tax code? It is a bunch of intents. It raises revenue, but it also incents and disincents certain activities through different amounts of taxation. Now, this is contested. I mean, we're not going to all get together in a room and agree on all the intents of the tax code, but broadly, you know, we kind of know what it's for. But this is where it gets hard: that when you don't have a single body like Microsoft or the Formula One Racing Federation or an airline, in the case of a frequent flyer program, when it's a, a government and maybe the law for the taxes was was passed after complicated negotiations and the language was well set, and there isn't good records on what people were thinking, and we got to try to figure out what the intent is, and we're probably going to get it wrong, so we sort of make it up, and we have different ideas. You and I might disagree at a very fundamental level. fundamental level on the intent of certain laws. So it does make it hard to figure out what we should do with a hack.
2: Give the Peter Thiel example: hacking the um, was it the Roth IRA system? I Roth think?
1: IRA. yeah. And
2: was this was this an example of of him circumventing, or, or was that a hack? So I think it's a hack.
1: So so the basic story is uh, a Roth IRA is invented by someone named Roth. I forget if it was a congressman or a senator as a way to give the middle class an additional retirement account, a certain kind of retirement account. And Peter Thiel figured out a way to use it. To shield, I'm not exaggerating, billions of dollars from taxation. I mean, if you asked Mr. Roth, is your intent to shield, have someone shield billions of dollars? You would have said, no, don't be ridiculous. This is meant for middle class people. But the way the rule was written, what Peter Thiel did is perfectly legal. He did not break any law. He used the laws as written, even though they might not be as intended. So to me, that is a hack. That is definitely a hack. Before he did this, I don't know if people realized you could do this. Now we look at it and say, whoa, that was clever. Hacks are clever. Even if they are parasitical, even if they are harmful, they tend to be clever. So yes, this was definitely a hack.
2: Okay, so another, I don't want to say contested, but another important moving part in, in the analysis of applying these basic hacking concepts to all sorts of social phenomena it's figuring out whether the hack is beneficial or not, whether the subverted system is better or not. And in this context, I want to talk about your gig economy examples, because I just had a different take on these than you do. And maybe I, maybe I got it wrong, but you seem to be very down on the gig economy. But why don't you make the claim about what your concerns are about gig economy things and why you think that's a bad hack if I have you right?
1: Uh, you know, it might be bad. It might be good. I think there are a lot of problems with uh, gig economy and how workers are treated. But, you know, let's so put that aside. What, what companies like Uber and Airbnb are doing is they're looking at the laws for, in the first case, taxis, in the second case, hotels, and figuring out how to get around them. Right? Figuring out how, you know, I can, as, as a, a customer, can get it to what's basically a taxi without the driver meeting all of the rules that regular taxis do. And that means uh, they can be cheaper. It's also easier. I mean, a lot of benefits there. But if we believe the rules are there for a reason, then this is a subversion of those rules. Now, if you are Uber, you're going to argue that look, these rules are ancient. These rules need to be changed. My hacks are innovations. And in fact, that seems to be the position that most of us are taking. We think Uber, we think Airbnb, these are good things. So we are looking at these hacks as innovations. There's no doubt that they are hacks. I mean, it was not intended by whoever came up with taxi rules that random people could have their cars become taxis without any amount of uh, following those rules. That was not the intent. Now, maybe those rules are obsolete. And this is a clever, efficient way of innovating here. It certainly is a change.
2: So this is the point I wanted to make. I mean, I was under the impression from that chapter that you somehow thought this was, a. this this gets too much into substance, but it helps us to bring out some of the concepts that you thought this was at least a concerning hack. You talked about ways to prevent the hacks, but- the way you just described it, I think, is a little different than I read in the book. And maybe I just misread the book. But that it, it the way you just describe it is the way I think about it, which is that, you know, there are a certain set of regulations that were designed with a certain technology in mind to, to achieve a certain end. We have technological changes that allow for new ways of doing business, that allow a lot of the services to be delivered potentially more, more cheaply, potentially much more efficiently, there are upsides and downsides on the employment side. It seems to me that this is definitely a hack. It's a hack of, you know, taxi regulations, just the same way that um, Airbnb is kind of a hack of extant hotel and related uh, accommodations regulations. And whether it's good or bad, you know, it's got some really good aspects. It's got some really bad aspects, and we're in the process of you know figuring out where the equilibrium should be. We're fighting about it, but it does seem like. I, mean, I, I would still say, and I just wonder if you agree or not, that the hack here was, was a good thing because it's, it's moving us to a different place, which has the potential on balance to be much better for everyone.
1: You know, I, if I was probably asked, I would say the hacks in those cases are more bad than good, but that's really my politics. I think that's not relevant to the notion of a hack. And, and, and you're right. I mean, society now has to debate the new equilibrium. So let's take let's take another hack, uh, the filibuster. Definitely a hack. Uh, actually invented in ancient Rome. There's a senator, I forget his name, who realized the rules said that all business of the Senate must be concluded by sundown. That was the rule. And he looked around and realized, you know if I never stop talking, it'll be sundown and nothing will get done. And that's what he did. Right? Unintended, unanticipated. It is a... Now in the US and I think other countries as well, it is it is a tactic. It is a political tactic. It has a name called cow walking in Japan, of walking very slowly up to vote. I mean, these are all delaying tactics. But it was a way of of tweaking the rules, finding a vulnerability to give extra capability that, you know, for many people in, in the different governments, it is believed to be an extremely important part. Of the rules, it, it has become part of the rules in different ways in different countries, so I, I do see the innovative aspect, especially when rules are hard to change, and rules of taxis, rules of hotels, they're very old rules. there are a lot of uh, interests who are spend uh, lobbying effort keeping the rules in place, and disrupting them through hacking is a way of innovating, and I think it's an important one in our society.
2: I agree. I completely agree. So, so in the context we've been talking about, intent can sometimes be obvious. The intent of the system can sometimes be obvious and sometimes be challenging. Whether it's beneficial or not, the hack is beneficial or not, that can be contested and it might change over time. Are these qualities also present in computer hacks? I guess they are in some sense. Is intent ever unclear in the context of a computer program? Isn't there a way it's definitely supposed to operate and then a hack is? finding a way to subvert that definite way of operating. And so is intent more precise in the computer context?
1: It tends to be. It tends to be more precise in context was a singular group in charge. So in sports, in a computer system, in, you know, a frequent flyer program, or sort of any affinity program, right? There's someone in charge. If, uh, you know, Starbucks has a frequent coffee buying program, they know what the intent is. And if you figure out a way to get free coffee without, you know, doing all the things, they're going to patch it. They're going to fix it. So in the in systems when you have one person making the rules. I guess a monarchy would be like that. You know, the the whether it's good or bad, whether you patch or not is pretty easy to figure out. It's only when you get to more democratic systems where there is a just a spectrum of ideas of what the intent of the system is whether the hack is an innovation or a problem, whether it's good or bad, that it's hard. I mean, Think about a a loophole in the tax code. It can take years to patch it, even if we all agree that it should be patched, because in the U.S., lawmaking is slow. And if we don't agree, if there suddenly is a lobbying interest that thinks the hack is great, let me take the carried interest loophole, which everyone agrees is a hack and, and some people like and some very wealthy people like, and it we haven't been able to patch it for 20 years, and maybe we never can. It'll stay around and then becomes part of the normal way of doing things. Now, I think of high-frequency trading as a hack. When you think about stock markets and their original intent was to allow people to buy and sell shares of a company. You know, It was never intended to make money on microsecond fluctuations based on physics principles and random noise and whatever. But people are making a lot of money on it. Uh, so far, it's legal. If you wanted to patch it, it's super easy to patch. Um, I'll give you the patch right now. Just declare all trades have to happen on a 10-second clock. We're done. But we've never done that. And and you know we probably won't unless high-frequency trading starts destabilizing the economy, in which case we'll say, this is really bad. But until then, we're not going to do that.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: So this actually brings me to the subtitle of your book, which we haven't talked about yet. So the book's title is A Hacker's Mind, and the subtitle is, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. So talk about that. I mean, is your claim that the powerful, the wealthy have a natural
1: hacker's advantage? My claim is they do, not because they're smarter. Now, it's interesting. In the computer world we normally associate hacking with the counterculture. Right? The the kid who's a clever computer guy, antisocial, wears a black hoodie. You think about how we think about hackers in in movies. We think of them as the powerless going against the powerful. But in fact, you know, organizations like the NSA are are the most powerful hackers on the planet. Because they have the expertise in the budget, and when you get to these more economic, political, social systems, the rich have a bunch of advantages. They can pay for expertise. They have the ability to use hacks in ways that the poor can't. If I figured out a way to you know subvert the taxi industry, it wouldn't do me any good. It would be better if I was a big company like Uber, I, I could use it more. If I figured out a tax loophole, it wouldn't be that interesting to me. I don't have a couple of billion dollars to shield, and and, and Peter Thiel does. And also, the rich are better at normalizing hacks. You know, When hacks are discovered by the poor, they tend to get patched pretty quickly. I mean, I, the IRS, if you find a way you know, to not pay tax, it's likely going to be corrected pretty quick. If you're wealthy and you do, you have more of an ability to make that permanent. Again, think of the carried interest loophole. Right? That is something that still exists because of intense lobbying. Lobbying is an expensive activity that I personally am not able to do. I just you know, don't have that kind of money. So, yeah, in the real world, the wealthy, the powerful are better hackers. They're better at doing it, and they're better at getting their hacks declared legal.
2: And so what is your general claim about how to bend them back?
1: Well, What I'm hoping to do in the book is, is really shine a light on this practice that I think there's value in thinking about these subversions, these loopholes as hacks. And then there's a lot of lessons in the computer world on how to fix, how to patch, how to make hacks less effective. And I do try to apply them. Now, I mean, you have to step back and say, do we want to? But assuming we do, there are ways we can patch hacks, vulnerabilities that we have discovered, that we can test laws for vulnerabilities before we pass them, something we do in the computer field all the time. We can uh, use red teaming, like we can hire accountants that go through the tax code before it becomes law looking for hacks so we know that we have to patch them in the legislative process, or in any rulemaking process. So I'm trying to bring the defensive capabilities and ideas that we've had in the computer field for the past bunch of decades to these other systems.
2: But in the example of the tax code, you can describe an effort to red team the tax code, either at the congressional level or the regulatory level. But then your point about the powerful comes right back because they have more lawyers and more lobbyists Trying to you know circumvent the the red teamers and to get in the secret not so obvious loopholes that are going to bring them uh, huge benefit. So
1: and that's an arms race. I mean, you know, right, right now, race, yeah. yeah, I mean, right now we're pretty sure that foreign governments have programmers, you know, in companies like Microsoft on the payroll slipping in loopholes, vulnerabilities, hacks, so that they can use them. And so we deal with that problem also. In the computer field, and you're right. So we'll imagine a tax law. It is going through negotiations, and somebody, let's say a uh, a congressperson, a watchdog organization, the press, runs some red teaming, finds a loophole. Now, it doesn't mean it gets patched. You're right, but it does mean it becomes public and part of the debate. And it is easier to patch a loophole before someone takes advantage of it right the Roth IRA loophole you know if someone just said hey wait you now put a put a line in there that says you know anyone making more than a million dollars a year isn't allowed to use this everyone would say yeah all right sure and write it in and, and no one would have given it a second thought because there wasn't yet a wealthy constituency to lobby in its favor
2: i'm a, i'm just a little skeptical i mean you do give many examples in the book but i'm skeptical that the hacking structure the hacking apparatus is a truly imaginative way to understand all these problems. And it's a way to understand all these problems of manipulating rules, circumventing rules to one's advantage uh, across a whole number of topics. But I'm I, mean, I just given what you say about why the powerful succeed, I'm, I'm a little skeptical that there are going to be real insights about how to bend them back. You see what I mean?
1: Yeah. and, and, you know, I think you're right, that is the hard part. But I think knowing how the system works has value. It is hard. It is hard to, in the United States, pass laws that the wealthy don't like. That's not something that we tend to do. So there are a lot of structural advantages for certain classes in our system. And you know, this isn't going to be a magical bullet. But I think it's a way of thinking about these systems that has value. And we're going to get to it. When we get to AI systems, I think it has a, a lot of value.
2: So I get to that in a second, but I do want to point out, and I had not thought about it this way, but you also say that there can be hacking deployed by those at the bottom of the power structure and that hacking can be used for social change. And you say at some point that's how revolutions happen and that hacking can be a tool of the weak. You give the civil rights, you know, boycotting and, and, and the civil rights movement and the like, so there is, there is hacking. Uh, it's not just from the top.
1: No, definitely not. And, and one of my favorite examples from today is there is someone trying to give a river legal standing based on hacking corporate law right? to give a non-human legal entity rights. That's totally a hack. But it would be really interesting if it happened. And we can argue whether it's a good idea or not, but definitely a hack. And this is someone. This is a hack done by the weak. And this is
2: what social movements are. I mean, a social movement, uh, especially a bottom-up social movement, is, in your terminology, just an effort at hacking. And sometimes they're wildly successful, and sometimes, and oftentimes, they don't work.
1: Right, because hacking is essentially parasitical. It's a way of getting advantage at the expense of other parts of the system. And, you know, it it is often the case that those who are the victims of of a parasitical attack try to fight back. So when hacks happen at the bottom, like, you know, when the peasants figure out a clever way to avoid uh, paying tax. And I have some examples. I forget what country they're from, where there were taxes on grain. And, you know, you'd figure out all sorts of tricks that you harvested only half of it. And then after the taxpayer came, you harvested the other half. Well, you harvested and left on the ground and picked it up later? I mean, all sorts of tricks, right? You know, and as the tax authorities discover these, you know, they're going to try to patch loopholes, fix their rules. And eventually, you know, the peasants rise up and say, hey, you know, all this grain tax is fundamentally unfair and we're going to overthrow the government. And that is the way of history.
2: Right. So I want to move to the last two chapters, uh, which are in many ways the most interesting chapters of a hugely interesting book part six is called hacking cognitive systems. And you seem very worried about this. What does it mean to hack a cognitive system?
1: So this is tough, right? Because now we're going to use the word intent for biological systems. And I don't believe in intent in biological systems, but we can sort of think about the biological purpose of different systems. And, and I spent a lot of time on our, our cognitive systems, our ways of, of things, systems of attention, our systems of fear, our systems of uh, group affinity, and ways that people, organizations, uh, manipulate them. And some of them are simple. And, And we have these conversations, you know, sort of in the world, like that Facebook manipulates our attention, our sense of outrage. And I think of these as hacks. I think of these as using the systems against us, And I worry about them. I mean, this isn't new. I've been writing about fear and and how it's manipulated for decades. But in thinking of it as a hack, it is something deliberately being manipulated. And as manipulators, we are better at it. You know, computer systems, the internet, large scale platforms are giving us new abilities to hack these systems. And they're largely done by powerful entities. You know, in the United States, mostly corporations, in other countries, it could be governments, to try to achieve some outcome that might be against our interests. So I'm really extending the metaphor here, right? Because there's no such thing as patching. Because how do you patch our systems? Well it's evolution. Well that takes a you know a couple hundred thousand years. That's not going to work. But the ideas do transfer. Right? So one example We've been talking about a lot in the media is notion of dark patterns. So this is the term given to manipulative user interfaces and whether they are interfaces that hide prices. So some of this is illegal, but used to be when you'd buy an airline ticket, there'd be all sorts of hidden fees you wouldn't see until the very end. So your decision process was uh, manipulated. Systems where you are shown, you're given an option every time. So whenever I, uh, I don't normally use the Chrome browser, but whenever I turn it on, I am asked, do you want to make this a default? If I say yes, I never see it again. If I say no, I see it again every single time. I can never say no and don't bother me anymore. These are all uh manipulative patterns designed to get us to do a certain thing. And there's a whole series of them and uh you know, a bunch of them are illegal in Europe, the, the Federal Trade Commission is investigating some in the United States. It's it, it's a big thing. These are basically hacks of our cognitive systems. And how to control this, how to defend against it. Well, it, you know, psychologically there really isn't a good way. I mean, some of it is knowing they're there. But they're often designed to work even though we know they're there. I mean, the way you would defend against them is you declare them illegal. So, right? for airlines, there are rules about you have to show the true price in the beginning and you can't do this drip pricing. Right? So, that was an example of the government stepping in and saying this is an unfair and deceptive trade practice and you're not allowed to do it anymore.
2: Okay, what about artificial intelligence systems? Tell us first what you mean by artificial intelligence. You know, the whole chapter and in other chapters, you talk about it. Just a working description so that, so that we understand what you're talking about.
1: You know, it's funny. Defining AI is notoriously difficult. And there probably isn't a definition everybody agrees on. I think of it as a broad array of technologies. And I'm actually waving my hands right now, even though you can't see it in audio, that are used for decision making. So let's stick with that and see if that gets us through. It's hard to to get to a better uh, definition. So when you think about hacking, it's a creative process. right? It's looking at the rules, finding flaws, finding vulnerabilities, finding exploits. It is something that is fundamentally human. But the notion of finding loopholes doesn't have to be human. In theory, a computer could do this. So right now, there are computer programs that, there's AIs that find vulnerabilities in computer code. And they're not very good at it, they're, they're, but they're going to get better. We, we know how this goes. Right? They'll get better every year. And that is a creative process. You could imagine, probably can't do it yet, a computer program, an AI, that is trained to find the vulnerabilities in the tax code. And you could imagine giving this AI all the world's tax codes. Like not just the country, the world. Here, here are the tax codes of the world. Figure out profitable hacks. And, you know, see what it says. Will it figure out that it's it's best to register your ship in Panama and incorporate in Delaware? I and mean, will it figure out that double Dutch Irish sandwich? I don't remember that hack. That was a hack that companies like Google and Apple would use. And it involves having an Irish company, a Dutch company, and an offshore American company, like in the Caribbean. And by moving intellectual property around and other things, you're able to avoid all sorts of, of U.S. tax. The I mean, ridiculous hack that involved the interplay. Of the laws of four different jurisdictions. Right? Computers are really good at doing that kind of detailed pouring through possibilities and combinations. So we could imagine computers that can find new tax loopholes. And that to me is really interesting because it changes the nature of hacking, it changes the speed. A human process that took months and years could happen in minutes or seconds. It changes the scale. You can can do it faster once you figure it out. It changes the scope. You could do it broader. And it allows more sophisticated hacks. What if there's a vulnerability that involves the laws of 20 countries? Humans probably don't have the cognitive power to figure that out. We can't keep that much in our brains. But a computer can so things will get really different and I think it's it's not if it's when computers start hacking these systems
2: so I want to ask you what that different look thing looks like because it seems if not scary very different but as you also discuss and it is also possible you could also have AI is not just offense AI can be defense too AI can design the systems so you could have AI designing loophole-free or hack-free or hack minimal systems. You could have AI, you know, interacting on defense, trying to prevent the hacks in some sense. Are both of those claims right? Is that possible?
1: It's definitely right. And we're going to see that in the computer field first, right? So I talked about these AIs that are finding software vulnerabilities. You can imagine a company like Microsoft employing that AI on its code before it's released. You know, that, and that Vulnerability finding AI could find all of the software vulnerabilities. And we can imagine, you know, we're here in 10 years from now saying, wow, remember software vulnerabilities? That, that was a really big deal until the AIs found them all and fixed them. And now they don't exist anymore. That, that's certainly a possibility. I mean, sort of the, the transition period is dangerous because the AIs will find the vulnerabilities in the existing software. But the new software is good because the AI is found and fixed them. All the legacy software that's already out there, it's the offensive AIs that are finding it. But in the long run, the defense benefits from an AI that finds software defects. And that's probably similar for things like the tax code. In the long run, the defensive AIs get employed first and things get patched or at least known. We were made aware of them. But it's that transition area, when the AI exists, but the tax code is still old, that I think is the biggest source of worry.
2: So now we're, it seems like we're moving into science fiction, but we're not. But
1: we're Totally in science fiction, no, I, I assure you.
2: Well, what is the relationship of human beings to all this offensive and defensive AI that's going on?
1: So I think in the near term, we are very much intertwined with it. One of the things we know about AI is that uh, it works best in concert with people. Right, so right now the best computer chess player can beat the best human chess player, but a pretty good computer paired with a pretty good human can beat the best human and can also beat the best computer. Right? this pairing of computer and human seems to be the optimal strategy. So when you think about a you know a tax code loophole finding AI. It's not going to just find loopholes and say, here's one, here's one. It'll find candidates, and then human accountants will look at what the computer found and say, oh, that's a good idea, or that's a dumb idea, or that might be a good idea, and tell a computer, you know, go look in this area some more. All right? And there'll be this back and forth. So this isn't a computers replace humans story. I think like most of AI, it is a humans plus computers do best story.
2: So... I think one of the claims in the book is that across all of these fields, hacking is growing. Is that right?
1: I think it's true.
2: Can you explain how and why you think that?
1: I mean, this is an intuition, but it seems like we are in a world or in a society where rule breaking is largely considered okay. And if you find a trick that the rules allow, even though they subvert the intent, good for you. That uh, you know, if you can get away with it, then you're good. And I think that's kind of a a symptom of our mistrust of systems and our mistrust of authority and of bureaucracy. That we're just getting more tolerant of hacks. I think we're getting more efficient at finding them. Even though we don't use the nomenclature. That we're just better at as organizations, as corporations, at, at finding and, and making use of these hacks. So I think there are a bunch of things coming together that are, are making hacking more prevalent today than, you know, at least in recent memory. I don't want to say than ever before. I That's probably too grandiose.
2: So Bruce, how did you come to write this book? I mean, it it starts off in the computer context and the idea of hacking, and then it just spreads to the rest of life. And I'm wondering... Is this the way you view the world, and this is the way you've always viewed politics and law and finance and the like? Or is this something that dawned over you over time? Is this is this the way a hacker's mind looks at the world, or is this
1: the way that you have come to look at the world? I think it's both. I mean, how I came to write the book is there was a pandemic and I was bored. And I don't know how you write your books, but I know there's kind of two different ways of writing. is that You think of what you want to say first, then you say it. Uh, I go to the opposite. I start saying it, and then I figure out what I want to say. So I'm a generalist, and I'm always generalizing, thinking meta, meta, meta. So I have these thoughts about hacking and how they might apply to other systems, and then I start writing. And a lot of the stuff I write ends up you know, deleted because it wasn't very good. But this process of writing is a process of understanding. And if you remember, it's a pandemic, and we had nothing else to do. So I spent a lot of time thinking about these other systems of rules and the parallels. And once you start thinking about hacking this way, then you find all sorts of examples. Examples are fun. And to me, what drives the book are the fun examples. And, you know, what's hard, I think the hardest thing when I was writing and thinking is to put a box around what hacking is. Because if hacking is everything, then suddenly it's not a useful way of describing anything. Right. So. I quickly say that breaking the rule isn't a hack. I mean, if I go to a bank and I point a gun at the teller and I rob the bank, I'm not hacking. I'm like stealing money, right? Hacking requires following the rules and then getting the money. So I'm you know, trying to figure out what's in and what's out. And then as I build this taxonomy, right, this hierarchy of hacking. And try to see where it goes. I mean, you know, cognitive hacks we talked about kind of barely just fit. You could argue they don't fit. I think it's useful, but, you know, I'm really stretching a lot of my metaphors here. So this is my process, and uh, I'm really happy with the book. I really think it came out well, and, and I think there's a lot, there's a lot of value in thinking of systems this way. You know, we can argue about whether a hack is good or bad, and we can even argue about whether something is or is not a hack. But I think the phenomenon is real.
2: I agree with you, and it is a terrific book. And thanks very much for talking about it. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.